This week, we continue the narrative lectionary with a reading from the book of Genesis. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was born when Jacob was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and couldn't even talk nicely to him. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stalk got up and stood upright, while your stalks gathered around it and bowed down to my stalk. His brother said to him, Will you really be our king and rule over us? So they hated him even more because of the dreams he told them. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them, and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, Here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns, and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them, telling them, Let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, Don't spill his blood. Throw him into this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save Joseph from them and take them back to his take him back to their father. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he's our brother. He's family. His brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the cistern. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and found that Joseph wasn't in it, he tore his clothes. Then he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I go now? His brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the long robe, brought it to their father, and said, We found this. See if it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph must have been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put a simple mourning cloth around his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. When Joseph's brothers realized that their father was now dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us? and wants to pay us back seriously for all of the terrible things we did to him. So they approached Joseph and said, Your father gave orders before he died, telling us, This is what you should say to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's sins and misdeeds, for they did terrible things to you. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers wept too, fell down in front of him and said, We're here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, 
Don't be afraid. Am I God? You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people, just as he's doing today. Now don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. So he put them at ease and spoke reassuringly to them. My father had one brother. I'm an only child, so I have no siblings. But my father had one brother, an older brother, and a sister. And his sister died when she was young. And his brother was always the head of the household. My father's father, my grandfather, was a traveling salesman. And he was often gone and out during the week. He would leave during the week to sell things door to door, and then he would return on the weekends. And so for most of the time, he wasn't there. And then on top of that, he died very young. I never met my grandfather. He died when my father was still uh, very young. And so my uncle was, in many ways, the head of the household. And Although my father never told me this, what I've heard from other people is that he was somewhat of a bully to my father. That he would convince my father to go along with whatever plan he had, and that my father generally let him because he was the eldest son. He was the head of the household. In uh, So, for a long time, my father, after my parents divorced, my father lived with his mother in the house that they had built in San Antonio, Texas, which uh, is in a very good place on about two acres of land, uh, which is a lot of land for, for the middle of the city anyway. It wasn't in the middle of the city, of course, when they built it, but it is now. So, but later on, he moved out and, and um, got a house of his own and was living on his own. And then my cousins moved in with my grandmother and took care of her. I have two cousins, the, the children of my, of my uncle, uh, a boy and a girl, who are much older than me, maybe 15 years older than me. And then in 2003, my grandmother died. And by this time, my father had not been living there for almost 10 years, I want to say, something like that. Not quite that long, maybe five or six years. Um, and then six months later, in 2004, early 2004, my father died. And I remember when I was at the, uh, not at the funeral, but at the, the wake after the funeral, my stepmother came up to me and said, you're going to have to deal with your uncle in your grandmother's house. And at the time, I didn't really want to deal with it because my father had just died and I was in shock and grief. It was very unexpected for me. But she warned me that that was going to come. Now, my uncle and I were not close. Because my parents got divorced when I was very young, my my 
uncle and uh, his children and really most of my father's family, um, besides my grandmother, uh, really didn't see me very much. And they kind of considered me to be the black sheep of the family in a lot of ways. And so I didn't really talk to, to my uncle. We went and visited him once um, before my father died uh, with, my, with my wife and my daughter. But, I mean, we didn't really talk to him much. Well, a year or so goes by, and I get a call from my aunt, my uncle's wife. And she says, or maybe it was from my uncle. I, I don't remember, to be honest. But they say... Andrew, uh, I want you to know we're, we're selling your grandmother's house and uh, we need you to fill out some paperwork and we're going to send that paperwork down. If you could just sign it and send it back, that would be great. So we got the paperwork and it was a quick claim deed. Now my, my mother was a realtor and she knew what this was. A quick claim deed just signs away all of your rights to the property. Uh, so, so in, in effect, my uncle was asking me to give up my inheritance. Was in fact asking me to give up my half of the land, the family, the family land that my father had inherited, but had then died shortly after, and thus I had inherited as the only child of my father. And so, I was very angry, and I called my lawyer. <laughs> um, and got him involved and told him to contact my uncle and uh, to get this worked out because I, uh, I don't know why they did this. And, and my uncle called and left me a message and said, look, we're going to sell the property and we're going to split the money three ways between the cousins, me and my two cousins. But the problem was that my father owned 50% of the land, not, not a third. And so really his two children should split their half of the of the inheritance, not mine. And so I talked to my lawyer, and uh, I didn't call my uncle back, and uh, I got my half, and I've never heard from them since. And it's been about... It's been at least 15 years since then. And I've never, I've never heard from them or spoken to them since then. This is the story that came to my mind as I was preparing for this, uh, for this sermon, as I was reading this story of Joseph and his brothers. I think this story of brothers fighting families, refusing to talk to one another of repentance and forgiveness is really common in the human experience. And I think it probably resonates with a lot of people when they read this, this story. So let's let's talk about this a little. Talk, go, go back and talk about the the text itself and the and the story here. So first of all, a lot of stuff happens between our last readings. Our last reading was about Abram, who becomes Abraham, and now we're talking about Joseph. Joseph is Abraham's great grandson. Abraham's son is Isaac. Uh, Isaac is the famously the son that that God asks Abraham to uh, to sacrifice, and then at the last moment stops Abraham and tells him to sacrifice 
uh, a goat instead, or a lamb instead. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was the older son, and Jacob was the younger son. But Jacob was favored by their mother, Rebekah. And Jacob was a trickster. Uh, Jacob, the name actually means something like one who, who, uh, one who cheated for, for their, something, something to do with tricking and cheating. I, I apologize. I don't remember off the top of my head. But when Isaac is old and he's going to, uh, he's going to bless, uh, Esau and, and give Esau his inheritance, Jacob tricks Esau, uh, and tricks Isaac, tricks Isaac into thinking that he is Esau and, causes Isaac to bless Jacob as the eldest son and give Jacob the, the eldest son's inheritance instead of Esau. And when Esau finds out, he's very angry and he plans to kill Jacob. So Rebekah, their, their mother, convinces Isaac to send Jacob uh, back to their uncle to find a wife. Now this is, uh, the, so this is back where where um, Abraham had come from. If you remember, there was there was a point where Abraham leaves his family and whatever. So they send they send Jacob back up there to find to find a wife who is not one of these Hittite women from the area, but is someone from their clan. And um, and so Isaac sends him, and he goes back uh, to Laban, his uncle, and he and although his, I guess really his great uncle or something. And and he finds, uh, he sees Laban's daughter, Rachel, and falls immediately in love with Rachel. And so he asks Laban to marry Rachel. And Laban says, well, if you work for me for seven years with no money, for no pay, you can marry Rachel. And so he does. He's a shepherd for, for Laban for seven years and does a great job. And then at the end, um, Laban uh, says, okay, you can marry Rachel. But then because Rachel's the younger daughter and, and Leah's the eldest daughter, and normally the eldest uh, daughter gets married first, Leah is Rachel's sister, Laban tricks Jacob by sending Leah into the wedding chamber and having Jacob sleep with Leah first. And Jacob is very angry because Jacob has now effectively married Leah. And so he goes to Laban and says, this wasn't our deal. You said you said that I could marry Rachel. And Laban says, okay, well, if you work for me for another seven years, I'll let you marry Rachel. I had to marry Leah first. She's the eldest daughter is what was required of me, he says. So, so Jacob stays with Laban, works with Laban for another seven years, marries Rachel. Laban doesn't want them to leave, but they eventually get away. Uh, during this time, uh, Jacob loves Rachel, but not Leah. He was forced to marry Leah, right? So he loves Rachel. And they said it says that God saw this and made it so that Rachel would not give birth to children, but Leah gives birth. So Leah gives birth to the first children. Rachel then gets angry and gives her servant, Bilhah, to Jacob to father children in, for Rachel. And Bilhah gives birth to children. And then Leah stops giving birth, and she gets upset, and so she gives her servant, Zilpah, to Jacob. And Zilpah fathers children for Jacob. And then finally, God has uh, pity on Rachel and allows Rachel to give birth. And Rachel, again, the favored wife and the younger sister, gives birth to Joseph, 
and then later to Joseph's brother, Benjamin. And Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin. And so to Jacob, Joseph and Benjamin are his favored children because they're the children of his favored wife who died in childbirth giving birth to the youngest son. And they were born latest in his life, late in his life. So that brings us to the point we are uh, in the story. And, and Jacob's father, Isaac, has died by, by this point. And Jacob um, wrestles with, uh, goes back and, and makes up with his brother Esau. Uh, and Esau welcomes him back and forgives him, and there's no hard feelings between them. And Jacob wrestles with God at one point, and he is, uh, God renames him Israel. And so in the text, we see them talk about Jacob, and we see them talk about Israel, and really they're the same person. That's important in the text. So let's, um, oh, and I forgot, but I have this uh, handy-dandy um, family tree here <laughs> of uh, Joseph and, uh, and Jacob, and all the way from, Ab- from Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac and Rebekah, Esau and Jacob, Jacob and Mary's Leah and Rachel, and has children by Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah. And the, he, so he has 12 sons. He has daughters also, but he has 12 sons. Um, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel, because Jacob's name is also Israel. Um, and then later, um, which I'll get into, Joseph has two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. So here's the text. The first, so the, the, our reading actually comes from three different places in the text. So it kind of jumps around, and if it feels like there's there's weird transitions, that's why. Um, the, the lectionary is kind of leaving out large bits of the text. So, uh, so it says, "Now Israel, in other words, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was born when Jacob was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe." Now we hear a lot about this long robe in, in the King James version of the text, and it, um, it's often it's translated as a robe of many colors, and that is um, a really well known, really well known uh, image, the robe of many colors. Um, and but he gives it to him because he's the favored child. Now when the, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his other brothers, they hated him. And they couldn't even talk nicely to him. So they hate him because uh, his father loves him more. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stock got up and stood upright, while your stalks gathered around and bowed down to my stock. Now this is foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on when the brothers come to Egypt um, and bow down before uh, before Joseph, even though they don't know that, that that it's Joseph. But can you imagine? You know, you've got you've got eleven brothers, and and the second youngest of them is the favored by your father, and he's always getting the good stuff. He's always getting the the nice clothes, and he gets to sit around. And you know, he he. It says in the text that that basically Jacob sent him to like spy on the brothers and make sure that they weren't doing anything wrong. And Joseph would always go and and tattle on his brothers and tell his father how they had messed up that day or whatever. So, so the brothers just really hated, hated him by this point. And now he's talking about some dream he's had where he's dreamed that he's going to rule over them, right? And so they say, will you really be our king and rule over us? And they hated him even more because of the dreams he told them. Now, the, uh, the multicolored robe is really well known for Joseph. 
um, especially due to an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical um, that was written in the late 60s and has been popular ever since called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And often when we think of the robe of many colors, we think of this, at least I do, think of this crazy robe in this musical, which is just over the top. Um, we can see here on the left one of the more recent versions of it. And on the right, this is one of the older um, older illustrations. So what was with this this coat of many colors? And, and I want to take a, a, a pause and, and kind of back up to something I talked about last week and talk about the the fact, is, is Genesis history or is it myth? And um, some people believe that the Genesis is, is literal history. And, and I'm, you know, um, I'm not trying to... to uh, take away those people's belief in that that's that's perfectly fine but for me personally i think that genesis is really myth it's really a, a myth story about the origin of the israelite people who were who were living in canaan when they wrote all this stuff down and um so what's really interesting about this this uh picture uh of the technicolor dream coat is in the old in the older um, illustration here in the top right corner. There's a there's a picture that looks like it's from from Egypt, and uh, it says, "Let us grab him now, do him in while we've got the time." But that picture is actually from an, a real a real drawing from Egypt, and here it is. I have a picture of it here. This um, picture depicts a group of people called um, the Hyksos people. And the Hyksos people were uh, a group of Canaanite peoples who uh, ruled northern e Egypt for a while. And what's interesting is that uh, the first century AD Jewish historian Josephus um, associated these people with the Israelites and with the exodus from Egypt. And the reason for this is kind of interesting. And, the, and uh, Archaeologists and historians have gone back and forth on whether there's any um, truth to this idea, but I think that um, there's some truth, and this is what I want to what I want to talk to you about. So, these were a group of Canaanite people who began migrating to Egypt sometime before the 18th century BC, so sometime before you know 1790 BC. Um, recent carbon dating of remains at their capital city of Avaris which is in northeastern uh, Egypt, have um, have dated those remains to uh, as early as the 20th century BC. So that would be, you know, 19-something uh, BC. And this timeline matches up with what we find in the story of Joseph and his brothers and in the story of the Exodus. Uh, this group has been, has been historically credited with bringing horses and introducing horses and chariots and the composite bow to Egypt, although that, that has been disputed, but traditionally that's been kind of thought what, what happened because horses kind of came in to um, the Middle East through the Levant and, and, and were brought down into Egypt by Canaanite peoples. When, uh, when the final pharaoh of, Egyptian, of the Egyptian 13th dynasty died around 1725 BC, so this is several hundred years, after the people started um, started coming to this area and, and settling in, in Avaris in northeastern uh, Egypt, 
after this pharaoh died, it, it appears that Egypt kind of splintered into various smaller kingdoms. And one of these smaller kingdoms was based at Avaris, which was a large uh, trading city. And it was at first ruled by the 14th dynasty, what's what we call now the, or the 14th dynasty, um, which uh, seems to have been composed of people from the Middle East. But then that dynasty was overthrown and, and the 15th dynasty was put into into control. And the 15th dynasty was a dynasty of Hyksos pharaohs. So these were Canaanite peoples who were ruling northern Egypt. And they expanded the rule all over all of northern Egypt during this time. So starting around um, 1750 BC, uh, they ruled northern Egypt. And then about 200 years later, around 1550 BC, uh, the city of Thebes rebelled against the Hyksos pharaohs and began their own dynasty, which would um, later become to be known as the 18th dynasty, or and also as the first dynasty of Egypt's new kingdom, which is kind of the the golden the the golden age of of Egypt, of classical Egyptian um, civilization, and the the ruler of this of the first ruler of this dynasty who uh, who fought against the Hyksos, his name was Amose. Amosa. I apologize. My I don't know how to pronounce Egyptian, so I'm sure I'm butchering that. But it's often uh, written and and kind of pronounced, especially in Greek, as Amosis, um, which is interesting because he, if the biblical story reflects uh, history in any way, he would be probably be the Pharaoh that is mentioned in the in Exodus when we, when we talk about Moses. And so Moses and Amosis seems very like a very interesting. Um, uh, similarity but uh anyway he uh, according to the records he successfully expelled a large number of the hyksos people from egypt around 1530 bc or so so if you think about that that's about 400 years 450 years um, or so after they first started settling in egypt and that timeline also roughly matches up with what we have in genesis and exodus so uh, people, you know, including Josephus in the first century AD, have concluded that the Hyksos people must be the Israelites. This must be where the story of Joseph settling in Egypt and becoming uh, the, uh, the second most powerful person in, in Egypt, and then um, of his later ancestors being being uh, kicked out of e or exiting Egypt, leaving and, and going back to Canaan, that that's where it came from. And I think there's some there's some likelihood to this. I, I think that, uh, personally, I think that it's, that probably the, the, the stories in Genesis and Exodus are myth, that they're, they're not a hundred percent true and that they're talked about in a very kind of exaggerated way. And I think that, that a lot of the names of people, for example, the name Israel and the name of the 12 children and the 12 children happen to match the 12 tribes that are in Israel at the time that everything's written down and all this stuff. I mean, it's possible, but I think it's much more likely that that's revisionist stuff that's put into the text um, as, again, as mythology to talk about how do these people come into being. But I think that this, this event of these groups coming in from Canaan and settling and then much later being evicted from, from Egypt, I'm sorry, coming in from Canaan to Egypt and settling and then being thrown out, probably left a memory in the people in Canaan that when they, that they told, and they probably told this story over and over. And so then by the time that, the, that 
the scriptures were written down, they had this oral story of this experience of being in Egypt, going to Egypt, being in Egypt, and then leaving Egypt as a large group and coming back to Canaan that they used as part of their their mythos, part of their understanding of who they were and how they had come to be. And so that, I think that's probably the, the reality behind this. But, I mean, that's just my opinion. And, and other people have different opinions. I'm not trying to, trying to disprove those or anything. So let's get back um, to the text here. So later on, the brothers go take the herds, and they go way north, many, many miles north um, with the herds. And Jacob sends Joseph to go check on them again. And so Joseph went after his brothers, and he finally finds them in Dothan, which is a long, they're a long way off. And Dothan happens to be on the trading route between um, the Arabian uh, traders who are, who are coming from the, um, the spice trade and everything and are going down to Egypt. They saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them, and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns, and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, and Reuben again is the oldest, when Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them by telling the other brothers, let's not take his life. Because if Reuben went back, he knew that if he went back to his father, he would be held accountable for the favorite son uh, being killed. Reuben said to them, don't spill his blood, throw him into this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. He intended to save him from them later and take him back to his father. So, um, oh, and actually my, my uh, images are out of order here, but we talk about cisterns. This is a picture of, of what a cistern in this, of this type would look like. This is, a cistern is basically a hole in the ground where water is stored because there's, water is fairly scarce in this area. So when it rains, you want to collect the rainwater. And so they have these smooth walled holes that, that collect water and they're, they're very deep. Um, so you couldn't just crawl out of it. And some of them have lids. Um, so that's a cistern. And here we can look and see, um, this is the, we can see on the right here, and this, this is a map of the area, and we can see Hebron, uh, which is where uh, the, Jacob and his family were living, and then you can see Dothan way up north. So they had, they had gone way up north with the, with, uh, the herds looking for land um, uh, to, to pasture the flocks. And, and then the green line on this map is the uh, path to Egypt and Avaris, where, um, where they would have gone. So they put him in the in the cistern, and then they then they then um, uh, they sit down and have lunch. They they just start eating. I'm sure they can hear him screaming for help or whatever, but they don't care. They just sit down and have lunch, and they're sitting there thinking. And they notice this these Ishmaelite traders coming in the distance, and Judah um, has this great idea, and he says, "Hey, what if we?" You know, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because he's our brother. He's family. And his brother agreed. His brothers agreed. And then when some Midianites, traders passed by, and here the Midianites and Ishmaelites are interchangeable terms, they pulled Joseph up out of the cistern 
they being the brothers, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought, and they, the Ishmaelites, brought Joseph to Egypt. And 20 pieces of silver was the going rate for a boy who is not yet of age. So another thing to notice here is the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, the other son of, um, uh, of Abraham. So, uh, that's also interesting. The son who was the, the son of the, of the slave, uh, who was, uh, kicked out, Abraham kicked out after he had his, his son, after he had a son by his wife, um, said. When Reuben, the oldest, who had apparently wandered off, returned to the cistern and found that Joseph wasn't in it, he tore his clothes, which is a, a common symbol of mourning uh, and, and grief at this time. Then he returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, and, I, and, where, and I, where can I go now? So his brothers took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the long robe, brought it to their father, and said, We found this. See if it's your son's robe or not. So they let his father come to his own conclusions about what happened. His father, of course, recognizes it and says, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have devoured him. He must be, have been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on mourning cloth, and mourned for his son for many days. This is where the map was supposed to be. <laughs> so here again, we see where they take him down to Avaris. So now a lot of stuff happens in between this point and the and the. the the next part of our scripture reading, which actually happens at the very end of, of Genesis. And so I just want to go over really quickly kind of what happens here. Joseph is sold to the Egyptians and uh, specifically to, uh, to an Egyptian, um, to, to, to a particular Egyptian. And he rises in the ranks in that Egyptian's household and becomes the most important, his most important servant because he's very good taking care of the Egyptian's household. But the Egyptian's wife becomes infatuated with him and attempts to seduce him. And when Joseph refuses her, the wife accuses him of attempted rape and gets him thrown into jail. Now, while Joseph is in jail, two of Pharaoh's servants are thrown in jail and have dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams successfully, saying that one of them is going to be killed and the other one is going to be forgiven and and put back into the service of the Pharaoh. Later, years later, apparently, when the Pharaoh has strange dreams of his own and none of his servants can interpret them, the servant who had been in jail remembers Joseph and calls for him to come and interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. And interpret and Joseph interprets the dreams to mean that there's going to be seven years of really good harvests in the land, and then there's going to be seven years of really bad famine. And the famine is going to be so bad that it will completely erase the previous seven years worth of, of good harvest. And so he tells Pharaoh that, that Pharaoh needs to begin saving up the grain from the land of Egypt so that he can have grain built up to give out to people when the famine comes. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of this and makes Joseph basically the second in, in control of all, of all of Egypt and marries Joseph to, um, to an Egyptian woman. And, and Joseph then has two sons by this woman. Uh, the, the famine comes and during the famine, uh, Joseph's brothers and father and their family run out of food. And so Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to get food. And when they arrive, they meet with Joseph, but they don't recognize Joseph because Joseph is dressed as an Egyptian now. He's much older, um, all of this stuff. And so Joseph uh, recognizes them, but is still angry about what happened. And so he plays a couple of tricks on them. Um, and eventually 
he after he feels like they've they've suffered enough he he uh reveals who he is to them and tells them to go back to his father uh tell him that he's alive and bring his father and all of their families and all of their possessions and everything back to Egypt to settle in the land of Goshen, which is a northeastern uh, Egypt near Avaris. So they go back and they get Jacob. Jacob is, is, you know, of course, extremely happy to know that Joseph is still alive. And um, so Jacob comes down and Jacob makes the makes Joseph swear that when he dies that they'll take Joseph's bones back to, uh, I'm sorry, they'll take Jacob's bones back to um, to Canaan, to Hebrew, and bury them in the family tomb. And so Jacob dies, and the, the family goes back to, to Canaan. The brothers all go back to Canaan and bury their father in the family tomb. And then they come back to Egypt, and that's where um, our, our uh, scripture picks up. And so then it... Once Jacob's dead, the brothers are now worried because their father was kind of protecting them in their mind. And so and this is many years later that Jacob dies. So it says, when Joseph's brothers realized that their father was now dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and wants, us to, wants to pay us back seriously for all the terrible things we did to him? So they approached Joseph and said, your father gave orders before he died, telling us, this is what you should say to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's sins and misdeeds, for they did terrible things to you. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God. So here they appeal not only to their father, but to their father's God. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers wept too, fell down in front of him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I God? You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people, just as he's doing today. Now don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. So he put them at ease and spoke reassuringly to them. So what's interesting here is up until this point, Joseph's brothers have not actually asked for forgiveness. They have not sought forgiveness from their brother. They have not apologized for what they've done in any way. They've just kind of not said anything and been accepted back and been living in Egypt and everything's been okay. But no one's really dealt with the big elephant in the room that is that they tried to kill their brother until their father dies. And then they have, they're, they're forced to deal with this reality the family, of their family dynamics. And it isn't until his brothers repent and ask for forgiveness, bow down before him, just as his prophecy, his vision, his dream foretold, and are really repented, repent, uh, really ask, seeking for repentance, that Joseph actually forgives them. But before this, it's obvious that Joseph has for, kind of forgiven them in his heart. I mean, he's let them back in, he's you know, he weeps when they when they come to him in Egypt. He weeps to see them because he's so excited to see his brothers alive. But he never actually forgives them. He never tells them they are forgiven until they come to him and seek forgiveness. And they, they come to him and, and repent. They turn in their ways back um, and try to create, uh, try to reconcile their relationship with him. Then he 
forgives them outright and says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Everything's going to be fine. It's a long reading, <laughs> and there's a lot to, to, uh, to work out in there. But what I want to focus on is this forgiveness. You know, Joseph is sometimes seen as kind of a foreshadowing figure of Jesus. He's sold into, sold, well, first the people around him plot to kill him because they don't like that he is the favorite. He's uh, thrown into a cistern, thrown into jail. He's, he's sold for money. Uh, but God, in the end, turns the act of, of betrayal into an act of salvation. Because it's because of the brothers' betrayal and Joseph's trip to Egypt that Joseph is able to later save his brothers and family from uh, the terrible famine. And so if it wasn't for Joseph, then the family would have died of starvation. And so the evil thing that his brothers did, God turns into their own salvation. And similarly to how God changes or, or triumphs over the evil of the crucifixion with the salvation of the resurrection. And so Joseph is often seen kind of as this archetypal figure uh, showing what G how Jesus will be later. But I think that, and, and Jesus, of course, speaks endlessly about forgiveness and about forgiving. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? No, I say 70 times seven times, right? I mean, he talks about it all the time, about forgiveness. And forgiveness is very important um, to being a disciple of Jesus. But, here's the but, but, I think that sometimes these texts, like this one, and like the 70 times 7th text, are used to excuse bad behavior, especially in abusive relationships, especially in um, situations, for example, where, where um, LGBTQ plus people are kicked out of their homes or are uh, sent to conversion therapy or have horrible things done to them. Um, when families disown people and everyone says, oh, well, you should forgive them. You should forgive them because that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would, would forgive them. Joseph would forgive them, right? But Joseph doesn't just forgive them right away. Joseph waits for them to come to him and repent. And I think this is an important nuance in the text because sometimes you're just not ready to forgive something. You know, uh, this story with my uncle is very similar to this. You know, have I forgiven my uncle for trying to cheat me out of my inheritance? Yes. In my, in my heart, I have forgiven him because I understand that it was his own character and his own situation that that caused him to do that. And it's out of his own nature. And I forgive him because I've forgiven him in that I don't hold a grudge against him over it anymore. But have I forgiven him to his face? 
No. Have I tried to reach out to him since then? No. Because I think that he is not interested in my forgiveness. And he has not tried to reach out to me. He has not tried to to repent, to tell me that he's sorry for what he did. He can't see it my way. And so I haven't I haven't gone out of my way to work my way back into his life. And I think that's a good and healthy boundary to have. And I think that people need to have healthy boundaries. And sometimes texts like this are used by abusive or unrepentant family members to point to and say, this is what you should do. You should forgive because Jesus would forgive. What does the Bible say? It says this. But there's more nuance to it than that. There's more nuance. And we need to be, we need to hold that nuance. We need to hold those multiple viewpoints in tension and take all of them into account. So I think the moral of this story is forgiveness is good for your soul. But, but, don't let that convince you to forgive someone who has treated you poorly if they're not ready to seek forgiveness. Um, Forgive to lessen your own burden, but don't let them off the hook. So... What I challenge you to do now, is this week after you leave the service, is to go and think about people in your life who perhaps you should seek forgiveness from. And reach out to those people if you feel comfortable doing so. You know, there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world right now, a lot of uncertainty. Don't let those things go too long reach out and and seek forgiveness amen